This section is probably one of the most darkest scenes in the Scripture. It's disturbing because we see here Peter and Paul in conflict. We have a situation, and it's really important that we don't water down what the situation here is, where Peter is doing something that is so heinous in Paul's sight that Paul feels like in public he has to call this guy out. I mean, it's sort of like this. Can you imagine if on a Sunday morning, uh, you know, uh, I'm up here just about to share and, and Adam stands up and says, John, I'm sorry, man, you're in sin and you really need to repent. You guys would be like, whoa, what's going on? You'd be shocked because, you know, far be it for me to ever sin, of course. But no, but in all seriousness, you'd be shocked. What's going on? And yet that's the scene that we have. We have a situation in Antioch in this place where the Gentile church is exploding, where God's saving non-Jews like, like, like mad. And you have the situation where Peter's doing something that Paul has to say in front of everybody, what on earth are you doing? Why would you do this? And so as we look at this, we see this is a, a, a situation that, that, that demands our attention. We've got to say, okay, what is Peter doing that Paul would feel like he has to rebuke him in front of everybody? What sin is he guilty of? Paul says it this way in verse 14. He says that these guys, Peter and those who are influenced by Peter, they were guilty of not being straightforward with the truth of the gospel. They were guilty of that. That's a big deal, isn't it? It's a big deal to, to present in somehow a gospel that's less than what God says the gospel is. And Peter was guilty of this. Peter, the apostle Peter, the one that Jesus said, on this, on this rock I'll build my church. The one who, who the book of Acts lines out as the guy who, who God called to, to, to be the sort of spokesperson of the apostles. Peter, the guy who God actually used to bring the gospel to the first Gentile, Cornelius. Peter was guilty of doing this. Now, what we're going to see here is what he was guilty of is basically a bad relationship. He was relating to the people in Antioch in a bad way. And this might seem like a, a little thing because all of us sort of struggle in relationships, don't we? We all sort, sort of struggle in, in our relationships with our friends and our family and our co-workers. It seems so much a common thing that we don't think it's that big of a deal. But the, the situation that we're seeing here is, is, is basically this. Paul's going to line out for us how bad relationships actually communicate a false gospel. Yeah, you heard me right. It's that serious. We're going to see that bad relationships actually communicate a false gospel. Now, in verse 11, Paul says this. He says, When Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face because he was to be, gla- uh, to be blamed. Literally, he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, Peter would eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself. Now, what's going on is, is that Peter would, when he'd come to Antioch, he'd fellowship with the Gentiles. When it says he would eat with them, it's not like in just a generic sense, like they were in the same room, sort of eating the same food, like as if you go to a restaurant and, oh, there's some people there, and there's some people there, and we're all eating. No, we're talking about a fellowship meal. We're talking about that they would actually come together and enjoy this sort of oneness that they had in Christ, this, this fellowship in Christ. They would break bread together, which was a big deal in a Jewish mindset. And so, so Peter would do this. Peter had already, in fact, the way it's worded in the original language was it was his habit to actually eat with the Gentiles. 
He was enjoying fellowship with these guys. He was loving these guys in a very real, tangible way. But something happens. Peter gets intimidated. And, and, and Paul tells us he was intimidated because of these certain men who came from the Jews. Now, we know these are who we've been calling in, uh, in Galatians the Judaizers, the, those who are of the circumcision, those who were teaching that it, to be a Christian, you had to first become a Jew. A, a Gentile couldn't just straight off start to follow Jesus. He first had to be circumcised, keep the law of Moses, and then once he was a Jew, then he could become a, a, a proper Christian. He could be saved. And in fact, it was these sort of, this group, this sort of mindset, or the people who had this mindset, who had contended with Peter in Acts chapter 11. If you remember, it says in Acts chapter 11 that those who are the circumcision contended with Peter, saying, you went into uncircumcised men and ate with them? Well, what were you thinking? Because Peter had gone, if you remember, to Cornelius' house and, and actually broke bread with them. Peter had preached the gospel as God had led him specifically through a prophetic vision that he received three times in a row. God had led him specifically to preach the gospel to this Gentile, Cornelius. And what happened? As he's preaching, the Holy Spirit falls and these guys are radically born again, radically filled with the Spirit. And Peter had to go, wow, God doesn't, isn't respecter of persons. He's saving the Gentiles the same way he saved the Jews. Peter had that experience. And when he had that experience, these people, these of the circumcision, came and were intimidating him, were trying to push him in a corner. Peter, what are you doing? You can't eat with Gentiles. Now, it's interesting, too, that Peter or Paul says in verse 12 that these certain men had came from James. That's James, the brother of Jesus. That's James, the leader of the church in Jerusalem. And so at face value, you might want to think, okay, James sent these guys to say this message. But that's not true. We know from also the book of Acts that James did not believe what these, these of the circumcision believed. James was not a Judaizer. Listen to this. In, in Acts chapter 15, verse 24, when James sends a letter out by the apostles to say how the, the Gentiles should be treated, he says, Some went out from us who have troubled your souls, saying that you must be circumcised and keep the law. He says, To whom we gave no such command. So the picture that Paul's painting for us here is that these guys who came from Jerusalem, they came from Jerusalem saying, hey, James sent us. We're coming in his authority. The leader of the Jerusalem church sent us and you guys do need to be circumcised and keep the law. You Gentiles have to become Jews. That's the deal. But they were lying. They were lying. Now, obviously we don't know these guys. We, we, we know that they're false brethren according to what Paul said, so these guys weren't really believers. But we don't know if they were purposely trying to lie or if they really believed that James agreed with them. We don't know for sure. I'm of the opinion that they purposely were trying to lie. You might have had some religious groups come to your door. Hello, we have these magazines. Are you interested? The Watchtower. Or maybe others, Americans, Perfectly white teeth, white shirts and ties. You know, a 13-year-old that has a set elder mat, you know, some 13-year-old that has a, a badge says elder mat or something, you know? This little kid who's supposed to be an elder somehow. The Mormons. Hey, we just want to come. And you know what they'll say to you? Both these groups will say to you, hey, we're Christians too. That's a lie. It's not just a lie because, you know, they're not Christians according to a biblical gospel. It's a lie because they actually don't believe that you are a follower of Christ, unless you're one of them. So when they say, we're Christians too, they're actually lying. They are deceiving on purpose. And that's what these Judaizers did. They came in wanting to deceive on purpose. 
Now, what happened is they come in and, and, and they're deceiving. And obviously, Peter, for whatever reason, is completely intimidated by these guys. And so, though he had been in times past loving the Gentile brothers and sisters, eating with them as equal brothers and sisters in Christ, he withdrew for them because he feared these men. And this is the first thing we have to understand about bad relationships, guys. Bad relationships are based on the fear of man. When we relate to people because we're afraid of their opinions or we're afraid of the opinions of a third party, that's a bad relationship. Bad relationships are based on the fear of man. James, the same guy who these guys said they were from, James, the brother of Jesus, wrote this. Listen, he said, If you pay attention to the one wearing fine clothes and you say to him, Hey, you sit here in a good place. And you say to the poor man, You stand there or you sit here at my footstool. Have you not shown partiality among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? <laughs> in other words, James wrote in his own letter to the churches, listen, if you're practicing partiality, whether it's because of somebody who's a, a, you know, a Gentile or because somebody who's poor, if you are relating to somebody based on a criteria that's other than the gospel, aren't you having evil thoughts? The bottom line is, guys, James didn't put these guys up to it. They put themselves up to it, and they were seduced because they were afraid of what people thought. <coughs> the Bible says in Proverbs twenty nine twenty five that the fear of man brings a snare, and whoever trusts in the Lord shall, but whoever trusts in the Lord shall be safe. The fear of man brings a snare. Guys, I'll tell you what, it, it doesn't help our relationship with people when we're overly concerned about their opinion of us. When we're afraid of what they might think. It actually keeps us from loving them. Now, the thing is, it was, it's bad enough that Peter got sucked into this, but what happens? In verse 13 it says, and the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him. In other words, Peter had influenced these guys. When those Jewish believers in Antioch who were the minority in Antioch, most of the believers in Antioch were Gentiles, but when they saw Peter sort of withdrawing, like he was only going to eat at the Jewish table at the potluck, you know, at the bring and share. He kind of withdrew and sat there with those guys. They saw them and thought, oh, oh, wow, maybe the Judaizer guys are right, and so maybe we should separate as well. They started getting sucked in, into the same Paul calls hypocrisy. Now, guys, this is important to recognize because, you know, sometimes we can take lightly our own hypocrisy. Well, you know, we're all hypocrites. We all fail. But don't forget, people are watching us. <laughs> you know, I'll tell you what, people are, are much quicker to believe the gospel you show than the gospel you speak. And so if you're speaking a gospel of, hey, I'm acceptable to God because I'm good, but you're not acceptable to God because you're not good, that's a false gospel. Even if you know in your head it's not true, even if you speak with your mouth it's not true, if you demonstrate that, that's what it is. And people will do that. People will follow that gospel. They will see, well, how does he act? How does he treat people? How does she relate to others? That's the gospel they're seeing, you see. And so what happens, it says in verse 13 also, it says, so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. Now, this blows me away. It blows me away because of all that the Bible says about Barnabas. I mean, check this out. In, in the book of Acts, we got this great picture of who Barnabas was. You don't have to turn there, but you can write these things down and look it up later. In Acts 4.36, it, it, it refers to Barnabas. It tells us that his name means son of encouragement. 
And that was his character. Barnabas was this guy who was always encouraging people. In Acts chapter 9, we see it's Barnabas who kind of comes alongside Saul, who was killing Christians one day and the next day worshiping Christ. And it was Barnabas who came alongside Saul and said, man, you guys should welcome this guy. God's done a work in him. He was a relationship builder. He was a guy that was, hey, come on, accept this guy. Treat him as a brother. The Bible says in Acts chapter 11, verse 24, it describes Barnabas as one who was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. He was a godly man. He was a spirit-filled, Jesus-loving, godly man. In fact, we know that Barnabas even understood the, the reality of the gospel. Barnabas knew that the gospel was for Gentiles in the same way it was for Jews. Barnabas knew that, that God was saving Gentiles. We know this because in Acts chapter 15, when Paul is, is in Jerusalem and he's debating these things before the apostles, saying, hey, this is what God's showing us, Barnabas is right there saying, yeah, amen, everything Paul says is true. And that's before this happened. So Barnabas understood these things to be true. And yet what happens? Even Barnabas gets sucked into this hypocrisy. You see, guys, the thing about bad relationships is, is that, you know what, when we're, they're based on the fear of man, it's not just us. When we fear man, it's not just us that affects. It affects all those who are watching us. And even the strongest saints can get sucked in hypocrisy when all they see around them is hypocrisy. It's so important that we recognize how dangerous hypocrisy is. Jesus said this. He said, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is what? Hypocrisy in Luke 12, 1. It's like, it's like a disease. It's like this contagious disease that affects, it infects us. We, we begin to relate to people based on a different standard. We begin to relate to people because we fear what they say or what they think. And what happens? We play the hypocrite. And what, you know what we do when we do that? We encourage everyone around us to play the hypocrite. You see, guys, when we do that, when we fear man, we actually teach a false gospel that says, you got to believe in Jesus and do what that guy over there does or says because he seems to be the authority. That's a false gospel. Now, it says in verse 14, that Paul says, when I saw that they, that's Peter, the rest of the Jews, and even Barnabas, when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, and then he says what he says. Now, it says in verse 11 that, that Peter, or that Paul, withstood Peter to his face. It's, we use that phrase in English, don't we? Get, someone's gotten in my face. Get in their face, right? That's what Peter did. Peter, I mean, that's what Paul did. Paul got in Peter's face, right in front of everybody. He says, what are you doing, bro? What on earth are you thinking about separating yourself from your brothers and sisters in Christ just because they're Gentiles? What are you thinking? Now, this is important. Because, guys, bad relationships you know, are based on the fear of man, and bad relationships will really encourage hypocrisy, and therefore, bad relationships need to be confronted. They need to be confronted. Because bad relationships within, within the body of Christ preach a false gospel, we need to confront bad relationships. Do you know why Paul writes in many of his epistles about how husbands love your wives, wives, you know, respect your husbands, kids, submit to your parents? 
you know, employees, be good employees to your employers, employers, be good employers to your employees. Why does he give all these, these generic things? Because he knows that relationships are how the gospel is communicated. And when relationships aren't being formed or built upon the gospel, they end up preaching a different or false gospel. They have to be confronted. The Bible says this in Proverbs chapter 27. Great couple of verses. Proverbs 27 says, Open rebuke is better than love carefully concealed, and faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. Guys, we're not doing each other uh, a service. We're not loving each other. If we allow each other to relate to each other, on a foundation that's other than the gospel. When we are overly clicky, when we push away or avoid people who look different or dress different or have a different skin color or come from a different background or have a different accent, when we do that, that has to be confronted. It has to be dealt with. When we say, I believe that Jesus has paid the price that I might be married for him for eternity, but then our marriage doesn't reflect that whatsoever, that has to be confronted. When we say that I believe because of the gospel that I'm now a child of God, yet our parenting is one that is, is where we make our kids feel like they have to earn our love and our, the place in our family, it has to be confronted. It has to be confronted. And that's what Paul's doing with Peter. He's saying, listen, what are you doing, bro? This can't work this way. It's, it's important to recognize, too, that when it comes to relationships, for those of us who are in Christ, relationships are always a gospel issue. It's not a, it's not a secondary issue. Whether or not a person believes that a believer should speak in tongues, that's a secondary issue. Uh, that whether or not a person believes that, that um, you know, y- you can baptize an infant, that's in, se- in a sense, that's a secondary issue. Whether or not a person believes that we should have this kind of worship style or that kind of worship style, that's a secondary issue. Those aren't gospel issues, necessarily. But how we treat one another is a gospel issue. Paul said, when I saw that they were what? not straightforward about the truth of the gospel. That's when I confronted them. Listen to this, guys. Listen to the prayer of our Lord. He said this, I do not pray for these alone, speaking of his apostles, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that's us who have believed the gospel, that they, that's us, that they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be one in us. Why? Listen, that the world may believe that you sent me. If we don't relate to each other based on the gospel, we preach a false gospel. Our relations with each other, guys, are a gospel issue. And bad relations preach a false gospel. Now, you might think, okay, if Paul's making this point by, by explaining to the Galatian churches that he confronted Peter because it was such a serious deal, you would think, okay, oh, bad relationships preach a false gospel, so good relationships preach the true gospel. 
So let's, he'd start talking about, here's the right way this should have happened, Peter. You should have done this or you should have done that. He doesn't do that. Paul doesn't say, okay, I'm exposing the wrong way that you're relating to these guys, and therefore here's the right way to relate to these guys. He just goes into explaining the gospel. In fact, what he does in these next verses, from basically verse 15 all the way through verse 21, is Paul gives us some of the most rich theological content of any of the letters that he writes. In fact, in seven verses, guys, in the book of Galatians, in seven verses, he pulls out or he begins to talk about uh, a depth of, of content that he takes seven chapters to deal with in the book of Romans. Now you're going, oh no. <laughs> this means John's going to preach forever. <laughs> no, here's the deal. Uh, because there is so much here, the good news is Paul will deal with these things and unpack these things sort of little by little as we go through the book of Galatians. And so what we want to do this morning is just unpack these things in, in a sense and very much on a surface way. And, and what I think God would have us do is to see how as Paul begins to unpack what the gospel actually is, what it is that Christ has done for us, that he's doing so because he wants the Galatians to understand. And the Holy Spirit wants us to understand, okay, if you understand the gospel, this is the foundation that frees you to rightly relate to each other. So let's pick it up in verse 15. Peter says, We who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles. Now, it's important that we recognize that, that Peter's not saying, I'm sorry, that Paul's not saying, um, okay, the Jews aren't sinners by nature, but the Gentiles are. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is, he's saying that, uh, that basically, he's using the term sinners both here in verse 15 and also later on in verse 17. He's using the term sinner to, to basically mean this, one who does not see themselves obligated to the law of God. Because in a Jewish mindset, if you do not think, oh, I have to do what the law is, then you're a sinner. You're in rebellion to God. You're falling short of the mark because God says, here's my law. If it's my law, you've got to do it. And so he's not using sinner. It's just the fact that someone who is born into sin, someone who has a sinful nature, that's what the Bible teaches we all have, Jew or Gentile. What he's using the term here in this context is one who does not see themselves obligated to God's law. That's how he's using the term here. So when, when Paul says, we who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentile, in other words, we who see ourselves as obligated to keep God's law, as opposed to Gentiles who do not see themselves obligated to keep God's law, he says, here's what we should know in verse 16, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, for by the works of the law, no flesh, that is, no human being, shall be justified. Now here's what he does. He starts off in these first couple verses in, making a, 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 in, in bringing up a word and a, and, a, and a concept, a theological concept, that is the foundation for all the book of Galatians. In fact, it, it was the foundation for the whole entire Reformation. It's this doctrine of justification by faith. Now, you guys have heard me say that salvation is, uh, the salvation has, is and always has been by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, right? That's the gospel. 
every church, no matter what their worship style is, no matter what their theology is about the gifts, no matter what their background is, every gospel-believing church believes that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. They might disagree on how that sanctification should look. They might disagree if they can lose that salvation or not lose that salvation, but they all agree on that because that is the gospel. Now, Paul's going to talk about this a lot in the first part of chapter 3, which we'll look at, Lord willing, next week, the first nine verses. What our, our, our righteousness is, our justification is. But, but just suffice it for now to say, this word justified that he uses three times in just verse 16 alone, this word justified literally means this. It means to be rendered or judged innocent. It is a legal term. It's this idea that, that you stand before a judge accused of all kinds of crimes and the judge hammers the gavel down and says, you're innocent and sets you free. Now what's amazing about justification, specifically the, the doctrine of the teaching of justification by faith alone is when we stand before the judge and he brings forth the accusations against us, the judge being God himself, you know what happens? We should be declared guilty. When we stand before the law of God and we look even at just the moral law, forget about the ceremonial law, forget about the the different sort of cultural laws that that were there, but you just look at the moral law, the Ten Commandments, you know what we see? We fall radically short. God says, you shall not lie. You shall not lie. Is there anyone amongst you who can say, oh, I've never lied? liar. (laughs) We've all lied, haven't we? We justify our lies. Oh, my lies aren't so serious as someone else's lies, but still we lie. The the, the law says, God's law says, thou shall not steal. Can any among us say we've never stolen? Oh, I've never stolen. Never stolen a candy bar, a pen from work? Because God doesn't say, okay, it's only theft if it's worth more than 50p. He says it's theft if it doesn't belong to you and you take it without asking. Hey, the Bible says, don't commit adultery. Don't murder. Oh, sorted. I'm not even married. How can I commit adultery? And as far as killing anybody, haven't done that. Don't plan to. But Jesus said, listen, the spirit of the law is this. If you look at someone with lust in your heart, you look at a person thinking, I would like to do this with them, that you've committed adultery in your heart. Can any of us say we've never done that? Jesus said, here's the spirit of the law. If you have hate towards somebody, you've murdered in your heart. You see, guys, the reality is this. Paul's saying this. Listen, if we, as Jews, who know the commands of the law, know what God requires of the law, if we know there's no way we're justified before God by those standards, if we know, how much more are they? If we who try to keep the law know that we can't keep the law, have to be justified by faith in Christ, how much more are they? See, here's the thing. We stand before the judge and the judge righteously says to us, man, you're guilty. You're a thief and a liar and an adulterer and a blasphemer. You're guilty. You're guilty. I'm guilty. We're all guilty. Now, this is the purpose of the law. We'll talk about that later on in, in Galatians chapter three as well. But we're all guilty. Now, here's the thing. Paul's wanting to say, listen, We're not justified. We can't be rendered innocent by the works of the law because if we try to do the works of the law, what does it expose? Only that we're guilty. 
So how can a just judge look at us who have broken his good laws, say, I look at you as innocent? How can that be? How would you feel if someone raped your little sister or your little daughter and then stood before a judge and judge says, you know, I'm in a good mood today. You're all free. You're forgiven. You would think that's an unjust judge. That person should go to jail. I can imagine worse things happen to that person than to my little kid. But what happens? God can look at us and say, you're rendered innocent. Why? Because when Christ died, he died for our sins. He took the payment for our sin. You see, what, what, what Paul's doing and saying, hey, look, we can't be justified by the works of law, but we're justified by faith in Christ. We're justified when we put our faith in him. Okay, Lord, what you did was enough. He's saying this, because Jesus' death is payment for my sin. It's God's wrath being satisfied for my sin. Therefore, listen, God can render me as innocent. Guys, that's the gospel. The good news is this, that God looks at you in Christ and he doesn't ignore the fact that you've lied or stolen or committed adultery in your heart. He doesn't ignore that stuff, but he says, because of Jesus, I render you innocent. I look to you as you're innocent, just as if you've never sinned. That's what he does. Now, guys, listen. If you don't understand this reality, justification by faith alone, you don't understand Christianity. If you have not put your faith in this reality, you know, and I don't don't mean this to condemn you, I mean this to hopefully help you, you're not saved yet. (laughs) If your faith is in, okay, I know I gotta believe in Jesus, but I gotta do good. I gotta make sure I don't mess up anymore or at least try not to mess up as much as I used to be because if I'm less sinful than I used to be, then okay, that means I'm saved. No. You're, You're rendered innocent by God only because Christ paid for your sins on the cross. Full stop. You're justified by faith. Do you realize how this frees us up? Listen, if God looks at you and he says, I see you as innocent, you know what that means? That means that God says, as far as I'm concerned, you are validly my son. He validates us by saying, you're mine, you're innocent, you can approach me, you belong to me. And if God validates us that way, in this eternal way, because of what Jesus has done, guess what that means? I don't need validation from somebody else. Have you noticed that that's what puts the pressure on our relationships? It's when we look to the people in, we're having relationships with and we look for validation in those relationships. You ever notice that? A husband really wants to know he's a good husband. And so he tries to do everything he can for his wife to get validation from her that he's a good husband. And what happens? The more he tries to please her, the less pleased she is. He can't satisfy her. He's frustrated. Therefore, he stops loving her and treating her well. A child tries to get validation from their parents by trying to always be obedient, trying to always do the right thing. Yes, daddy. Yes, mommy. I'll do this. I'll do that. And what happens? Just thinking, if I can just make my mom and dad happy... I'll be validated. I'll have value as a person. And what happens? It never gets there. So what do they start doing? Rebelling against their parents. They begin to hate their parents. 
happens with employees and employers. It happens in every relationship, guys. When we are looking for validation in our human relationships, we're always disappointed, frustrated, and unable to love the person we're relating to. But when we know that God says, look it, you're rendered innocent. Jesus paid for your sins. You're rendered innocent. I validate you as my child solely because of what he's done. To those who have received him, to them he's given the right to become children of God. You're valid in my eyes. You're valuable in my eyes. You belong to me. You're free to look for validation from other things. You're free to love people because guess what? You don't have to have them love you back. See, when we know that we're so loved by God, that we're validated by God, that we're accepted by God because of what Jesus has done, because of what Jesus paid for, we don't have to look to people for validation. I'll tell you what, as a pastor, I need to be reminded of this because so often I'm looking for God to validate me by blessing my church. Lord, bring more people. Save souls, Lord. Why aren't you doing it through me, God? Why? Don't you love me? Don't you care? Don't you want to use me? And God says, listen, John, your validation has nothing to do with your ministry. It has only to do with what I've done for you in Christ, what I've paid for you in Christ. Guys, we can't relate to each other if we're looking for validation from each other. We're only going to relate to each other if we know I am right with God because of Jesus. As Paul says in Ephesians 1.6, he says this, by grace, he has made us accepted in the beloved. You know who the beloved is? It's Jesus. Why does God accept you? Why does God hear your prayers? Why does God answer your prayers? Why does God say you have a place in heaven? Why does God say you're forgiven? Because of the beloved. Because of what Jesus has done. And you can't relate to anybody else until you realize that. At least you can't relate to anybody else in a healthy way until you realize that. So Paul says, listen, don't you understand? It's because Jesus' death is payment for you that God says you're innocent and you don't need to pursue validation from anybody else. Now then Paul says this, sort of uh, probably thinking, okay, someone's going to say, okay, there's that grace business again. That's going to only make people want to sin because they know that they're forgiven. They know that they're free. that's, that's, That's a bad doctrine, dangerous doctrine, that grace. And so Paul says this in verse 17. But if while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves are found sinners, is Christ therefore a minister of sin? Certainly not. Perish the thought, God forbid. That's nuts, is what he's saying. <laughs> no way. See, the accusation is, well, if I still sin as a believer, if I'm still found a sinner, if I still look at, if I, if I think, well, you know, I'm not obligated to the law, isn't that mean I'm in rebellion to God? What does that mean? God, Jesus is promoting rebellion to God? If, if Jesus is saying you're not in the law anymore, if you're saying the gospel says you're not in the law anymore, is that not promoting rebellion to God? Now, this is important for us to understand. And again, we'll unpack this more at the end of, of Galatians 3. But, but he, he, here's the reality. The Bible teaches really clearly that Jesus is not anti the law. Look at what the Bible says. Jesus himself said this. Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to what? To fulfill. Now, if we believe that the Old Testament is God's word, and we should, because Jesus believed the Old Testament was God's word. In fact, just the verse after this, Jesus said, you know, there's not going to be a single jot or a tittle that's not fulfilled with God's law. So if we believe the Old Testament law is from God, God gave us that, which we should, then we recognize that God 
says it must be fulfilled. But here's the good news. Here's the good news. Jesus already fulfilled the law. The requirement of a law is, is, is living in perfection toward, toward God and towards others. Jesus already did that. The requirement of the law is sin has to bring forth death. Jesus already paid for that on a sin on the cross. He's already fulfilled the law. And so Paul's answer to his critics is this. Listen, hey, Christ is a minister of sin. He's not encouraging rebellion against the law. He's already fulfilled it. Look what he says in verse 18. But if I build again those things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. Now, what's he talking about? If I put myself back under the law, if I build again or, or build anew or put myself back under the law, all I do is expose I'm a transgressor. I'm a sinner. If I begin to just live by the law, you know what I'm going to do? Is show I'm worthy of death. That's all it does. That's all it does. And that's why he says this in verse 19, for I, through the law, died to the law. Why? That I might live to God. You see, Paul's point is this, and we'll talk more about this as we get into chapter 5 of Galatians. Paul's point is this. Listen, you're not free. Christ doesn't make people free to rebel against God. Christ makes people free to actually live for God, to actually live to God, live before God, live for God. Now, now here's the deal. How does this affect our relationship with each other? How does this create a foundation for us to relate to one another? Guys, listen. Because Jesus fulfilled the law, God relates to me completely apart from the works of the law. Because Jesus fulfilled the law, his relationship to me is not at all based upon the works of the law. His relationship with me is based upon Christ. Christ fulfilled the law. Christ fulfilled the requirements of the law. As far as God's concerned, I'm perfectly righteous because Christ did that on my behalf. It's what we call the doctrine of imputation. Our sin was imputed upon, uh, upon Christ. Christ's righteousness is imputed upon us. It's this idea that if you talk about two bank accounts, yeah? You have Christ's bank account and you have our bank account. Ours is in debit for like, is in, in overdraft for like a million pounds. <laughs> and it's gaining interest against us every day. Anybody can relate to that? Can I get an amen? You know what I'm saying? We're in that place. Christ's account, endless. The value of which we can't even fathom. What happens? Christ takes our debt, imputes it upon his account, and then also takes his account and imputes it into ours. Imputation. He's fulfilled the law. Now what does this mean? If Jesus, if, if Jesus fulfilled the law on our behalf and God accepts us beyond the law, God relates to us apart from the works of the law, you know what that means? It means that we're free to relate to one another the same way. Check this out. Romans 15, 7. Man, if I could encourage you to memorize this verse, memorize this verse. This is a great one, another verse. Paul says, therefore, in fact, if you read the context of Romans 15, it's talking about Gentile and Jewish relations. He says, therefore, receive one another just as Christ received us to the glory of God. The word for receive there in the original means to accept into friendship, accept in the hospitality. It means that someone comes to your door who's a stranger and you say, come in and eat with us. Be part of our family. That's what Jesus says to us. He says, listen, my father 
loved you so much that he sent me. And I have paid the price. I fulfilled the law on your behalf. Now, I invite you to come in to relationship with me, sup with me, dine with me, fellowship with me. That's how Christ has received us. Christ received us based on what he did, not based on what we do. So what's Paul saying? Paul's saying, listen, if Christ received us based on what he did, how should we receive one another? Based on what he did. I love you, not because you're so lovely, but because Christ died for you. You love me, not because I'm so lovely, but because Christ died for me. We receive into relationship one another, not because we both like spicy food or football or speak the same language, sort of. We receive one another. Why? Because Christ has received us based on his finished work, you see. This is the standard for our fellowship. If we understand that, we're free to love each other. Now, he goes on to say in verse 20, another great verse to memorize. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me and the life which I now live in the flesh, that is in day-to-day human experience, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now there's tons here. When Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ, he says one of the most profound statements that he makes in all that he ever writes. And it's, it's this reality of the fact that his cross is our cross. That when he was crucified, in some radical, eternal way, we were crucified. Now we're going to unpack that when we get to Galatians chapter 6. But know this, okay? Know this. When he talks about the crucified life, he's not talking about yourself being mended. He's talking about yourself being ended. (laughs) You see, you don't need to be rehabilitated. You need to die. Did you know that? I don't need to be rehabilitated. I need to die. But how can I be crucified without actually being destroyed? I was crucified with Christ. His death provides for mine. That's the point that he's going to make. And when he says, it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me, he's again unpacking this radical reality that Jesus, and again, some mystical, eternal way, dwells within us by his Holy Spirit. That will be Galatians chapter 5. That he dwells in us by his Holy Spirit. See, Christianity is not some sort of transaction, you know? It's not just that simple sort of bank account analogy I gave you. It's not a transaction. It's a transformation. He actually takes up residence within us and begins to change us from the inside out. And Paul says, therefore, here's how I live my life now. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. In other words, now I just relate to God in this love relationship. Now, you might be thinking at this point, okay, John, why all this theological mumbo-jumbo? Why do we have to get into all this stuff? Why don't you just say, let's just love each other? This is why. Because unless you understand what love is, how can you love one another? And love is demonstrated in its perfection at the cross of Jesus. 
And so it's in us understanding what actually took place at the cross of Jesus that we understand how love is to be demonstrated and then we're able, therefore, to show it to each other. Check this out. 1 John 4.10 says this, In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now that is a big, loaded theological word, propitiation. But this is what it means. It means this. It means that which appeases the wrath of another. That's what propitiation means. That which appeases the wrath of another. In a sense, it's kind of like it can be used, it, it doesn't fit, the Bible wouldn't use this way, but it can be used of sort of, the, you, you've seen the old movies, right, where the natives are, you know, they, they bring the, the woman sacrifice, oh, a beautiful lady, scantily clad, and chuck her into the volcano, you know what I'm talking about? God is appeased, you know what I'm talking about? Propitiation. The woman was somehow to appease the wrath of God, right? Except for our God is not a fickle God who wants to see some lady crispy, Okay? Our God is a creator and re- is the creator and the redeemer of the universe. Our God made the world, knew the world was going to fall into sin, and before he made the world, had the plan on how he's going to redeem it. And in the, the pinnacle of that plan is propitiation. It's God the Son satisfying the wrath of God the Father that we might become sons of glory. We want to become his kids. That's love. Love lays down self to benefit others. Love says, I will suffer so that this one can be in right relationship with God. That's love. Love isn't just, oh, nice to see you. Please go first in line at the bringing chair. That's a good thing to do, but that's not love. Love is much more than kindness, guys. Love is kind, but it's, it's not less than kind, but it's much more than that. Love lays down its life so that one might be in right relationship with the Father or with another. Herein is love. Not that we love God, but that God loved us. You see, guys, listen. When you recognize that God's loved you that way, and that part of that love is Him actually, because His wrath's been appeased, He can as the Holy God as the Holy One is how Jesus is described, He can actually take residence within you, and check this out, begin to change you from the inside out. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God loves you so much that He paid for the wrath that should be poured out on us and He cleansed us so perfectly that he comes and takes up permanent residence within us, that he loves us enough to actually change us from the inside out. Do you believe that? When you believe that God is changing you from the inside out, that God so loves you that he's going to make you like Jesus, you know what happens when you get changed by that or begin to be changed by that? You are free to believe, amen, if God can change me through his love, he can change anybody. He can change anybody. Which means when we relate to each other and there's someone in our midst who just seems to be blowing it over and over and over again and just want to go, slap, get it right. Then we can say, wait a second. The only reason I'm not there is because of the grace of God. Except for the grace of God, so go I. If the love of God shown to me in Christ 
can change me, is changing me, the love of God can change that person. I can trust Jesus to do that for this person. You see how understanding the gospel is the foundation for how we relate to one another? You see how rightly relating to God has to come before we can rightly relate to one another? Guys, even the commandments reflect this. The first commandments are what? You shall have no other gods before me. God says, look, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. I'm your redeemer. Have no other gods before me and don't make a God of your own imagination, an idol. God says, think right thoughts about me and then you'll be able to not commit adultery, (laughs) not steal, not lie, not blaspheme. Why? Because you're in right relationship with me. You won't be, you'll be in right relationship with others. Guys, listen. Jesus said this, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another, notice, as I have loved you, that you also love one another. See, a gospel-centered church gospels one another. We relate to each other for the sake of the gospel. We relate to each other by the gospel. And we relate to each other that we might communicate the gospel. See, guys, I, by the grace of God, will hopefully communicate the clear gospel on a Sunday morning. But the issue is, will we all demonstrate the clear gospel on a Sunday morning? Will people come here and see us and see the gospel of Jesus based on how we relate to each other. Doesn't mean we're not gonna, doesn't mean we're always gonna get on. I mean, here's the reality, right? We have to confess our sins to God every day, don't we? We have to get that fellowship right, don't we? So the same thing's gonna happen to us as people. Yeah, I'm gonna get on your nerves, you're gonna get on my nerves, I'm gonna sin against you, you're gonna sin against me. But because of the gospel, we know we can get that right. We can get that sorted. Hey, Jesus died for that sin. If he died for that sin, not only can we be forgiven and restored to each other, but we can trust him to continue to change us and teach us how to love more. A gospel-centered church is one that where, where, where God's people relate to God by the gospel and relate to one another because of the gospel and demonstrate that for the sake of the gospel. Guys, Paul is wanting us to understand the Holy Spirit is wanting us to understand that God wants to demonstrate his love to the world through how we relate to each other. Let's let him do it. Father, thank you so much that you're able to do this. And I pray, Father, that as we continue to go through Galatians, that you would transform us. I pray, Father, more than anything else, that today you would help us to see what you've provided for us in Jesus. Lord, may we be saved by the gospel. May the gospel be to us good news right now.